You're listening to a DM podcast. All right, guys, my special guest today is Keith Senior. Keith is a legend of rugby league in England. Keith played a staggering 505 first-grade games, which began at the Sheffield Eagles before he switched over to the Leeds Rhinos. His career saw him win the Challenge Cup with the Sheffield in 1998. He also played in four winning grand finals with Leeds in 2004 and the three-peat between 2007 and 2009. His representative career includes 33 games for the Great Britain, nine games for England, playing in two World Cups in 2000 and 2008. Post-footy, Keith is the first-team coach at Sheffield Eagles and also works as a community and welfare support manager at Rugby League Cares. Welcome to the podcast, Keith Senior. Keithy, welcome, buddy. Good morning for me. Good evening for you. How yeah. are we? Yeah, doing good, man. Really pleasure to have you on the podcast. First things first, Keith, I'd love to know a little bit more about the seniors. So tell me a little bit about your family and the backstory of uh, Huddersfield, bud. Oh, we're getting deep already, straight into yeah. nitty-gritty. Oh. <laughs> I've got to say, have you ran out of English uh, rugby players to interview now, so you're going to the depths of despair. <laughs> <laughs> Don't be silly, mate. I saw Barry McDermott was probably one of your first English interviewees. Uh, that's he was. He likes to boast about. He likes to boast about uh, first does Barry Mac. So no doubt, once he sees that I'm on you, he'll say that he's done it first anyway. Are you guys best mates? <laughs> yeah, we, we see each other quite a bit, and especially with what's happening with with Rob Burrow at the moment. Yeah, you know, Rob lives just around the corner from me, so. You know, we tried to get as many people to come round. Mm. You know, that played with him. Uh, you know, just just to basically put a smile on his face, keep him keep him motivated, keep him going. Yeah. Uh, you know, because he's going through some through some tough times, and it's it's the least we can do. So, you know, Barry's is is, is a big part of that yep. uh, arranging. You know, for next players, we're, we're seeing him on on Wednesday. So I think there's, there's me, Barry, Mark, Willie Porching, and Richie Mathers. Off to see him, so we went to see him last week with Danny Mags. Perfect. So it, I caught up with Willie Poaching a couple of days ago, actually. He oh, ca- yeah. yeah, he did a podcast with me a couple of days ago. Great guy. Yeah, he's doing very good. He's, he's back with his his mentor Tony Smith at yeah. OKR, so he's he's, he's 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 happy to get back in the coaching scene. He had a bit of a bit of time out, which uh, no doubt he told you he struggled he struggled he struggled with, but. Uh, you know, he's happy to be back in the coaching scene. His kids are growing up well. He's doing really, really good. Yeah, the beauty of rugby league, but Keith, you know, unfortunately what's happened to Rob, but for all you guys, like the caring factor, we have that in Australia as well, but it just kind of goes to another level in England, like the care factor between you guys. You know what, it's, it's, it's been huge. Uh, and that was probably one of the, the biggest games that I've ever been involved with. You know, Jamie Jones, you kind of had a testimonial mm. because what happened with Rob... He, he, he made it in partnership with Rob to, to raise funds for MND and for Rob's uh, Rob's cause. Uh, and the stadium packed up. We could have sold the stadium out twice over. Yep. Uh, on a personal point of view, you, you know, it, it's probably one of the worst situations to come together for as a team and, you know, as ex-teammates and, and as, as a current organisation with me, Drynos. But as, as an event, it was it's probably the most memorable game I've ever been involved in with 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 anything. You know, I've had a, I've had a superb career and played in a lot, a lot of big games, but that epitomised what the people of rugby rugby league is is all about. You know, there were shirts from every team in the crowd uh, that could get all the tickets, and and because Rob's such a, a great bloke, he's such mm. a special bloke. It's touched everybody's hearts, and it's. It has pulled everybody together, and it's it, it's it is tough. It's tough for everybody involved, but it's harder for him and his family. 
you know, so the, the 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 more support we can can give him and his family going through these tough times, it's it just shows that everybody's putting their hand up and and, and doing that. Yeah, mate, you're a big fella and you had an amazing career, but when you have a look at the stature of Rob and the amount of games he got to play and what he achieved. Like, for me, I'm kind of going around, and most people are saying right now, Rob, pound for pound, is the strongest player they've ever played with, mate. Agree? You, you can't deny that because, it was, what was he, five foot four? Yeah. He uh, weighed about 70, possibly 60 kg, 70 kg, so he didn't weigh much. No. You know, so it was, it was a strong character. He had the heart of a lion. Uh, and I think that's that's one thing, you know, he's, he's testament to, to people's attitudes. He got told that he were too small. He'd never play the game, uh, you know, so that shows that no matter what boundaries there are put in front of you, that you can you can overcome them. Mm. And, you know, he went on to, to have a, a superb career and I, one of the biggest games I think I've ever seen him playing. I was injured that year. It was the year that I retired in 2011. Yep. And uh, and I got the privilege to go to, to watch the grand final at Old Trafford, part of the press, doing it for the radio and... It's the first time that anybody has received uh, every vote for the man of the match. It was it was unquestionable. It was such a performance. It was it was inspiring. Uh, yeah. But that was that was the beauty of him. You know, it it was it was a magician. He could do some magic things because he's he's a Jason Robinson yeah. type. Yep. With his speed and his agility, uh, you know, he could do some amazing things and. Uh, I was just very thankful that, that I played with him for the majority of, of my career rather yeah. than against him because it, it annoyed the hell out of me playing <laughs> against him. He annoyed the hell out of me playing with him because he's one of them joker types. Because he's got the small man syndrome, he uh, he has to use humour. You can't fight. You can't fight the toffee. It was, you know, you say strongest pound for pound, but when it came to a fight, it, it was no good at fighting. Uh he keeps on going about his three fights that he's had. He's three and all winners. There you go, three knockouts. <laughs> that's very, that's very contentious. <laughs> uh, Did you used to defend next to him? Yes. Yeah. It was. It was. It was tend to be outside me. I didn't want him inside me. Uh, obviously the halfbacks tend to be the, the targets, the spots. Uh, so it's, it's, it was easier for me to to try and look after him on the outside of yeah. me. But but I never had any issues. I knew that he could look after himself. That was the beauty of him. Mm. You know, I knew that he'd have to tackle underneath people, so I'd have to get in there quite quick to stop the offload or something like that. But that was yeah. understanding, Rob. But when it came to the one-on-one tackles, you knew there weren't any issues. You knew he'd, he'd do it and he'd, he'd put his body on the line and, and make sure he'd do his best. So... You know, even though it was tiny in stature, you knew that there were never going to be any issues with it with the yeah. defensive one. Well, mate, I'm only five foot five myself, so no short jokes in this podcast. All right. I, I saw that. I saw uh, some of the pictures of you. Obviously, I've done a little bit of research on some of the podcasts that you've done, and <laughs> I saw that you were a, you were a tiny bloke. And I'm pretty cheeky too, mate. I'm the same. I'll probably start the fights and then just run out. Yeah, you've got to be, aren't you? <laughs> it's the best way. You don't want to damage your walks, do you? <laughs> exactly right, mate. So, Keith, we kind of went a little bit off topic. The seniors, Huddersfield. Tell me about yeah. the, you know, tell me about the backstory a little bit, mate. Yeah, I'm good at changing the subjects, mate. <laughs> uh, to be honest, uh, my dad, I grew up on a council estate in Huddersfield. Mm. Uh, my dad was an HGV truck driver. So he worked all the hours God sent. You know, it was, it was back in the day when you could get away with working 98, 90, 100 hours a week. Yeah. There wasn't no and, and there was no limitation on the amount of hours that you were allowed to drive. So 
he was a typical Yorkshireman that uh, that provided for his family. His sole purpose was to to, to provide for his family by putting food on the table, putting clothes on his backs, yep. uh, by doing all the, the natural male dominant type of thing that, that it was in them days back in the back in the 70s 80s it was all about the male looking after the family mm. and that epitomized my father you know that's what that's what it was like my mum was a stay-at-home mum uh you know so i never really got to see my dad much it, like i say was working all, all hours god sense uh to provide for his family uh, so my mum was basically left to look after me and my brother i've got an older brother he's two years older than me yep so basically we ran the roost my mum wasn't very dominant or controlling she couldn't control two uh two boys that fought a lot okay you know we were brothers but we used to fight all the time is your brother big too yeah same size as me yeah okay which is pretty big yeah we're not sure why because my dad's my dad's only five foot seven five foot eight my mum's the same so so every time the milkman comes round, I check him out to see if he's got a bald head. We tried to say my brother he's, he's six foot two, I'm six three, so we're both we're both quite tall. So when we when we came together, we were like cat and dogs, and we took some pulling apart. And my mother couldn't really control us, so so like I said, we ran the roost until my dad came home at the weekend, yeah. where the slipper had come out or the belt had come out. You know, we'll get a whack from it. But then it'd be back to normal on a Monday morning where we'd sort of like run the roost a little bit. So I sort of like grew up on my own a little bit, looking after myself and taking care of myself. Uh, because like I say, my mother couldn't control us. So so when it came to anything like going to school, I was I was a shit. Yeah. Uh, get away with saying saying that word. Yeah, but, yeah, go you know, for it, I never went, went to school. I didn't enjoy it. And because I didn't have the discipline at home mm. from from my mother, uh I basically did. I did what I wanted. I did what I wanted to do, because there were no consequences. There were no consequences for me to for me to deal with them apart from apart from when my dad came home at the weekend, uh, which you can handle. You know, I could handle that. It was you know it was something that I, that I wasn't in the the fear of death. You know, don't get me wrong. He never beat me senseless. Yeah, yeah. It was a, a clip around the ear or a or a scrap, like I say, on on the backside with a slip. Yeah, yeah. The back. we, we all got that. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, it was a talking gesture, which, you know, it was just something that you put up with and it didn't really stop me doing what I needed to do. So I became very, you know, I looked after myself in, in many ways when it came to that, you know, sorted myself out when I did go to school, yeah. uh, playing out. I, I, I did all the usual childhood things that you do. I, I tried uh, I tried acid when I was a young kid, when yeah. I was 14 years old. I tried the drugs. Never 14, wow. Again. So I tried the magic mushrooms. Yeah. I tried that once. Never tried that again. It didn't have great appeal. I tried smoking once. That didn't appeal to me. I was I was a little bit of a rogue when it came to thieving. Yep. Uh, I used to go to shops and I used to make Nick's sweets, Nick's protractors, school items, anything. And then I used to go to school and sell them. There you go. That was probably the only time that I went to school. Uh, Did you ever get caught? You know, so I was I was a bit of a shit. I yeah. was a bit of a shit. I got caught once stealing, which was probably a good thing Good thing for me. I went into a, a sports shop and I tried stealing some some tracksuit bottoms and I ended up getting caught. Uh, they called the police and I ended up getting banged up in Salesford there. Which, as a as a young kid, I think I was fourteen years old at the time. It was it was quite a good 
life experience to, to deal with, mm. you know, going, going into a, a prison cell in, in Huddersfield to, to deal with stealing and thinking, my dad had, my mum and dad had actually gone away on holiday okay. to, to the East Coast, so I, was, so I was stopping at my mate's house. So they'd, they'd gone to my grandma's and granddad's for a holiday. I was stopping at my mate's house, ended up getting caught. They just said, just leave him there for a day. So they didn't rush oh. back. You know, they, they left me in prison cell for a full day late right into the evening. They stayed at my grandma's and came back, you know, basically just to teach me a lesson. Mm. Uh, and it was probably one of the best things, you know, that happened to me. It sort of like reined me in a little bit. As, as Mate, a you did you shit yourself? <laughs> to be fair, yeah, you couldn't because you know the, the noises that were going on because it was on a Saturday, so there, there were loads of drunk people, and drunk that, people yeah. that had been locked up from, for causing you know behaviour and, and that type of thing. So you know the noises that were there. You get to sleep on a cracker little yeah. sponge mattress, and you've got four walls to look at. You know, so it's. It's 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 not the greatest. I suppose it's what a lot of people have been going through in lockdown at the moment with a yeah, <laughs> little bit. situation when you've just got four walls to look at. Uh, your mind starts running wild, and uh, you know you start thinking all sorts of thoughts. And I suppose that's that's the beauty of it. it helps you, helps you put life into perspective and, and sort yourself out a little bit. So on the negative side, you know, my dad would have bit of a shit for leaving me there, but it was probably a great thing that he actually did rather than just coming to my rescue yeah. you know, straight away. So, Keith, instead of going down this path of being a criminal, you obviously led a very successful rugby league career, one of the most successful careers in England rugby league history. What stopped you from going to the bad side? To be honest, like I say, you know, certain incidents like that helped me put life in, into perspective. I wasn't a... Uh, I started rugby at nine years old, so mm. I'll, get, I'll get into the, the rugby side of things a little bit. So my brother played for Huddersfield Schools at Wembley in the pre-match game okay. uh, for the 1985 Challenge Cup final, which was Wigan and Hull, one of the so one of the greatest games, uh, Challenge Cup finals ever. So my brother played for Huddersfield Schools in the pre-match, mm. pre-match game. So that sort of like got me into rugby. I, I didn't go to the game. I stayed at home and, and, and watched the final on, on the TV. Yeah. So after that, because, you know, my, my big brother, he, he he played at Wembley and he was playing rugby. So I wanted to follow in his footsteps a little bit. So I started playing rugby up at Uddersfield YMCA, which is a rugby union ground. Yeah, There wasn't, you know, many rugby league teams close to me. So I went to Uddersfield Rugby Union and played there for a long time. Uh, ended up doing that, but never really in it, excelling in it. Okay, And I never really had the desire or the want to become a professional rugby player. Yeah. You know, as a kid, you speak to, you know, your Kevin Sinfields, your Rob Burrows, Danny Maguire's, all them people, since they were knee-high, they always wanted to be a professional rugby player. I never had any drive or ambition to do that. Yeah. To be honest, I never had any drive or ambition to do most things. I was, like I say, when it came to school, all them, all them things, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I didn't know what my career path was going. Uh, and, I, and like I said, I didn't help myself because I didn't have the drive to want to be able to do that. So I didn't feel I was any good at school, so I never, I never pushed myself yeah. because I never had that self confidence in myself to be able to push myself and, and motivate myself to, to better myself in a way. Mm. You know, I thought I can't do that, so I'm not going to try it. Yep. That was my mindset. So it was a case of just doing the easy things. 
And, and that's when it came to, like I say, you know, stealing, doing all them type of things. It, it was easy to do. I could earn a little bit of money, uh, you know, and getting caught was, was probably a big, a big eye-opener for me. Uh, you know, like I say, I did get a, a real good telling off from my dad <laughs> over that because it was quite a big thing. Yeah, I can imagine. And, uh, <clears throat> like I say, you know, that, that was one of the, the big key moments that sort of like changed my life, as in the path that I was going to go down. I didn't still know what I wanted to do. Mm. I, I still didn't have a, a career dream. Uh, I was going to school just for, because you had to. You had to go to school. And then when I left school, I didn't want to go into further education. I, I was playing rugby union still, and uh, I still didn't know what I wanted to do. Yeah. So my dad got me a job at his work. As, a, as an HGV mechanic. So because that opportunity came up, it was it was on a youth training scheme back in the day, yeah. uh, sort of like an apprenticeship type. Uh, and it was, I, I earned £29.50 a week for a 40-hour week. Wow. So it was <clears throat> not a lot of money, mm. not a lot of money. Uh, so I had to do a lot of extras. I had to do a lot of scotching, which was working cash in hand. Yep. Obviously, I paid the taxman afterwards. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> So that's how it was. So I, I was sort of like going down the same path of, as, my, as my dad. I was working 80, 90 hours a week. I was, I was still doing a little bit of the rugby union side of things. But then that team disbanded, which is the best thing to ever happen in my life. I've been there since nine years old. And I played rugby union with, with my mates all the way through. My brother yeah. played at the same club. Yeah. Uh, and I've been there, like I say, since nine years old. And the coach had had enough. It just decided that he wanted to finish. So so the team had disbanded, so I didn't have anywhere to play. Okay. And one of the truck drivers at the company that I was working at played at Penangling Division 4 at Milnes Bridge, which is an awful standard. Uh, one of the props was called Nine Bellies. So <laughs> it, it wasn't a great uh, <laughs> type of thing, but you, you know, the people played because they enjoyed it and the social aspect of stuff. So I just went down there to play. Uh, just not to mention though, Nine Bellies did get into Super League. Uh, it was it was a Huddersfield Giants mascot for a very long time. <laughs> it, it but, <laughs> you know, it doesn't mean that you can't make it, you know, playing in Penang League Division 4. <laughs> but, you know, the standard was just people just playing just for the fun of it, the, you know, uh, the social aspect and, and the excitement of it. And I, I was killing it. I was, you know, I was playing really well. And, I, and all of a sudden, uh, the coaches were saying, you're too good for this. You're too good for this division. So there were phone calls made to Sheffield and I think there were phone calls made to Huddersfield. So I was, I was I'm from Huddersfield, living in Huddersfield, working in Huddersfield. Huddersfield didn't show any interest, uh, but then uh, Sheffield took interest in Glenn Knight, who used to play, was yep. a halfback. He played at Huddersfield. Uh, he was the, the academy coach at Sheffield and he lived in Huddersfield. So he sort of like enticed me to, to go down to Sheffield. It was just a case of a trial. Okay. Sheffield weren't a big team. They was in Super League, but they didn't have the big money signings. They, you know, so they couldn't afford to spend hundreds of thousands of pounds signing players. So they had to try and de to develop as many players as they could. So it didn't cost them any money for me to go down. I was a number in the academy. You know, so it was a win-win situation. But Glenn Knight, he sort of like became a little bit of a mentor for me. He sort of like guided me a little bit uh, because he played the game and, and he did a lot for me in the fact that I, uh, I, 
I was driving, but I didn't have a car. I was working all these hours, so he'd, he'd, he'd taxi me everywhere. He'd, he'd look after me, he'd get me to training, and, and he'd sort of like give me a lot of advice on the way. And I remember turning up at training and just seeing the the setup, the environment, the situation. Mm. Even though it was still part time, then we're going pre Super League here, so it was still part time rugby for Sheffield. So they still trained in the evening. It was before everybody went full time. I think there was only Wigan and Leeds at the time that were full time. That's why they dominate. Well, Wigan dominated everything with were full time, and it just opened my eyes up a little bit. And it was amazing, you know, just to think, you know, people are making a career out of this. You know, they're earning good money, yeah. they're living the dream, they're playing in front of fans, you know, in, in front of so many thousand fans, and it just sort of like changed my attitude a little bit. Um, and, and I didn't want, I didn't want to be working all these hours, you know, and, and like I say, and. There were one defining moment. Uh, I, I, I used to get the. My brother lent me his car because I couldn't afford my own car. So my brother used to lend me his car. Yeah. So I used to go to work, do a whatever hour shift. After after that, then on a Monday evening, I'd do my work. Then I'd go into scotching. Yep. So I'd do my work in the evening where I'd, I'd earn a little bit more extra money. And I think I, I finished work that evening about three in the morning, about 3 a.m. I went home, had a couple of hours kit, you know, got washed up, went back to work for, for seven in the morning the next day. I had training that evening, so then I had to drive to training. So I'd done a full day shift as well, set off to drive to Sheffield, and I fell asleep at the wheel. Uh, went through some red traffic lights, crashed my car into into this woman. Uh, you know, we are both shocked. No, no major incident, as in injuries, anything like that. Both cars were still able to drive. Yeah. I was a little bit shook up, you know, give me details. Still ended up going training, still trained. Ended up luckily getting a phone call that night from the husband of, of the woman. And she said to me, she says, uh, my wife says that you're a young kid. Uh, do you want to go through the insurance or do you want to pay by cash? Mm. Like I say, you know, I, I weren't very educated at school. I was thick as pig shit, to be honest. I didn't have any insurance. So I couldn't afford it. Yeah. I couldn't afford insurance on, on my brother's car, so I, I didn't bother with it. Uh, so she said, you know, he said to me, do you want to pay cash? So it was like, wow, I've got a massive let off here. I've got a mass, massive let off. So I ended up paying cash for that. I ended up, you know, my, my family helped me out. My brother helped me out. I ended up paying for their repairs on their car and I ended up repairing my brother's car myself because I was I was sort of like in, in the industry. And that were it then. I had to make a I had to make my mind up. So I, I, I spoke to Gary Everington uh, and he, he gave me the opportunity to go full time as a young kid. Only earning I think my first contract at Sheffield was a thousand pounds a year. So I was earning me £25 a week, YTS, and then I was earning a thousand pounds a year working, you know, playing for the Academy at Sheffield. Uh, so he gave me the opportunity to go full time. Gary Everington, being Gary Everington, he's a businessman. He's very, very shrewd. He's done very well for himself. Yep. Still tight as hell. <laughs> Typical window salesman that doesn't give money away. But I think I, I was on seven thousand pound, you know, for the year. So I'd, I'd had a bit of a wage rise, but it opened up the door for me to to be able to focus on full time training. The team weren't full time. But I, I was given that opportunity to be able to go training in the day, look after myself a little bit better, look at the systems, look at the setups, and, and look at the, the life that I could have. Uh, and it changed my attitude tenfold. Uh, and my drive and my ambition, my, de my determination was just 
it just shot through the roof. Yeah. It's something that I wish that I had as a, as a kid, you know, as a young kid, I wish I could have a lot more confidence in myself. If, if, if you can understand that, you know, as a kid, I, I didn't have much confidence uh, in, in a lot of things that I did. And that's why I just shunned things. I didn't really take the time out to, to try and push myself mm. un, unless it was rugby because I enjoyed it. I loved it. And that's a typical kid. If you don't enjoy it, you don't bother doing it. Uh, and I didn't, I didn't find my forte in any education side of things. But when it came to sport, I, I was a goalkeeper, you know, got involved in as much sport as possible, yep. played rugby, you know, so th- there could be one week where you'd play three games of rugby a week and a game of football. Yep. You know, that's how, how, how much you love it as a kid. Uh, and very, very thankful that that opportunity, opportunity came by chance. Don't get me wrong, I had the talent, but it's, it is a case of it, it fell onto me. It fell onto me rather than me searching for it and chasing for it. Yeah. So I'm very thankful for that. Keith, the actual club of Sheffield's always intrigued me because when I was growing up, I was a massive Shark supporter and always used to wake up for the Kangaroo Tours. And I remember one game, Andrew Weddinghausen played at Sheffield at this Don Valley Stadium and he kept scoring tries, right? But this Don Valley Stadium was beautiful compared to all these little older stadiums all around Kangaroo Tours. But then I Googled it today and they've ripped it down. Did you, yeah. did you play at Don Valley, number one? And tell me a little bit about the kind of the traditions behind this this little club that kind of I've been intrigued about since I was 10 years old, mate. Yeah, Sheffield, they're known a little bit <clears> of, <throat> of the, the sort of like gypsies because they've, 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 not got a, they've, never, they've never really had a, a fixed stable home until Don Valley came, came forward. It was an athletic stadium. Mm, with so the track, yeah, yeah. So you can imagine the track around the stadium, <laughs> the open, open-ended stadiums, uh, one covered side which which the crowd would go in and we we had good crowds but we didn't have massive crowds so yeah. we might have a crowd of four to five thousand for a game but because the stadium was that big with the, 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 the athletics track around it you couldn't really hear them you know <laughs> so it didn't have the the old school the atmosphere uh, yeah feel yeah. of of you know your old central park your old you know salford stadium where the, the, the crowd's on top of you and the you know i think there's there's, there's castleford that's left over and, and wakefield that are the old school type of stadiums uh, where the crowd's totally on top of you so it didn't have any of the atmosphere but like i say as a fixed home don volley was their fixed home for for a, for a while but once that got ripped down it was a case of then going back on the road uh, you know, so they played at Wakefield, they played at Doncaster, they played at Allerton, which is a dog track. Yep. You know, so not purpose built for a rugby stadium. So they've been all over the place. And now there's a, a new purpose built stadium on the old Don Valley site, which is is being erected as we speak. You know, the pitches down we've been there for the last two years. There's there's no terraces, but as a as a stadium, it's like being in Australia in the fact that there's bankings. Yeah, yeah. And you know, people can when when it's a nice day. There's there's no better place to be. You know, you can sit up on the banking. You know, you, you'll know it better than anybody when the old school Aussie stadiums and, and you can sit on the grass, sit on the grass bankings, enjoy the sun and, and enjoy a game of rugby as well. You know, so that's a work in progress. But the you know, the always struggled to have a set home when Don Valley got ripped down. Uh, that was a massive thorn in in the side for the club. But as Mark Aston's has done for the last 20 odd years. He took over in 2000 when there was the, the merger with Sheffield and Huddersfield, which was 
a necessity just through finances. Yep. Sheffield as an organisation were losing money. Uh, I saw the fist and they needed to, to make some money. So they ended up selling me. I, I got sold to Leeds and then they merged with Huddersfield. But Mark Aston, being a true Sheffield person, was was near enough there from the inception back in 1985, I think it was. Okay. Uh, he, re, he reformed the club uh, and, and he's, he's carried on coaching it since since 2000 and still involved now. Okay. Now, Keith, talk to me a little bit about your style because I used to love seeing you fend off these centres. They had no idea how to tackle you. Obviously, the power game was huge for you, but who kind of was kind of a big influence in you developing your own footy style? The old iron palm. I like to call it the iron palm. It was huge, mate. It was <laughs> huge. It was huge. Yeah. 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 I had, I had size behind me. Obviously, I was six foot three. I was, I was hundred and I played at hundred between hundred and hundred and two kilos. Uh, I was I was reasonably fast as well. I was pretty quick as well for a big guy. Uh, actually, because like I said, I had a a rugby union background and like I said I didn't really watch much rugby mm. and I wasn't I wasn't a fan of the game so to speak yep. but when I did watch a few games it was rugby union so uh, David Campesi I've seen that you interviewed him yeah you know Goosey. watching him playing playing for the Wallabies you know were, were great and then Jonathan Davis when he was was was, was in rugby union and then when he moved over to, to rugby league that's when I started picking up a few of the rugby league yeah. type of players when it you know the old witness team with Kurt Sorensen horrible player you know one of the toughest teak toughest teak yeah. type of players but you know seeing him play was 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 awesome for me uh, you know there was, there was nobody that I really looked up to uh, in a way but then when I started playing I had, I had the pleasure of watching Mal Meninga who was a big guy uh, and, and sort of like saw them type of people. I, as my mentors, as well as an international player, I had Gary Connor and Paul Newell. Oh, wow. So they were yeah. a few generations above me. Uh, so then when I started coming through the system, they were the two main centres. Gary Connor, obviously, was a, a centre and a fullback. You know, Paul Newell, he was, he, was, he was a great mentor for me. And he's, he's perfect play was left foot step right foot fend through the gap fending him off and through the gap yeah uh looking back you know that's that's a little bit of how i played and i've never really looked at it that way but you know watching them type of people playing you know i was very fortunate to to play with with paul new i I was on on his wing in 1998 uh and, and their styles as well. You've got to think Gary Connolly loved to drink. Uh, I heard he loved to drink. <laughs> not yeah. in a bad way, don't get me wrong. <laughs> Paul Newell was the most relaxed person you'll ever meet in your life. Yeah. You know, so these are people that, that have got a vast amount of talent in the game. But to have a conversation with them, the first time I ever met Paul Newell, it was a bit of an eye-opener. It was, like I say, I was I was rooming with him. 1998, I was on his wing yeah. for the test against the Kiwis. I walked into the room and he sat on the bed. Uh, he sat on the single bed as well. So he said to me that I could have the double bed, which was very strange at the time. I thought that's a bit weird. And he was just like going, oh, I've got I've got so much to do, you know. I've got too much to do. This this is getting in the way, you know, because it was so natural for him, rugby. Yeah. Because he was so relaxed and he didn't need to live and breathe and, and focus on it. And I suppose I sort of like took a little bit of that mentality as well. I was, I remember Graham Stedman's once saying after a, 
after a Yorkshire Lancashire game. Yeah. He said to me afterwards, he said, I've never seen anybody so relaxed because I never got nervous for games. I was just so relaxed and so jovial. I just enjoy everything about it. Uh, you know, so on that aspect, I think I'm knew he's fallen off on me a little bit. So you, you kind of had that that two sides of you because at times I remember even I still remember that test when you and Steve Maddai got on and just like you had that those two sides where you know obviously you had to be focused and you had to deliver that sort of style but you know what you're talking about now you've got that totally opposite side which a lot of players actually do have. Yeah, oh, I'm I'm an angry man. I'm an horrible angry man at times. Uh, I was about to say that. I just didn't want to, I didn't want to say that. I wanted you to say it. <laughs> Like I say, you know, like with, with Rob Burrow and stuff like that, there's many a times that he's just because he was that sharp and that quick witted, there'd be many a times that I just say, Right, get away from me now, otherwise, I'm going to snap your neck. <laughs> <laughs> because uh, that'd be the, the next stage, you know, when it gets to that stage. But that was, that was, I enjoyed that. That was how I played the game. It's, 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 a, it's a tough game, it's a horrible game, and it's, you, you can't, you can't take a back, back, back foot, you can't, can't take a back step. So, uh, aggression was was a big part of my game. The relaxed side of it uh, was the build up, and I like to have crack on field as well. You know, I like to have a joke with opposition yeah, yeah. players. And Matthew Gidder and me and him used to have used to have some great battles, uh, but we had fun with it. Yeah, you know, there were, there were there were no hatred between each other. There was a lot of, you know, if if he'd done me, it'd be, oh well done, mate. You know, we'd would congratulate each other. Would mm. you know? But then when it came to it as well, I'd also stick the headbutt into him when I could. Uh, you know, so there were certain aspects of that, but yeah, the aggression side of it was it, it was it was paramount for me. That was that was something that not an enforcer like Barry McDermott. You know, he was classed as the enforcer. Yeah, he, was. he was. Oh, I I like to you know just set a presence, so to speak. Uh, yeah, that Steve Matai incident. Wow. That brings back some memories. Uh, <laughs> Mate, at, at Leeds training, because of Barry Mack, yourself, Adrian Morley, like how aggressive did some of these training sessions get? You, you tend to have a little bit of a code of conduct, though, at times. You, you've, you've, there were times where you had to get it right. You had to, you had to no matter what, when you'd be in the combat room, you'd be in the rook room, you know, then padded four walls, you had to knock crap out of each other. You had to do it. You yeah. had to, you know, you had to go full on. Thankfully, you've got to think though, forwards and back splits. That's why I'm with all the backs. <laughs> pick on a, so, pick on Sinfield. I was, <laughs> I, was like, I had Chev Walker, you know, as a young kid who, who the same size as me as a freak yeah. as a kid made his debut as a 16 year old freak of a kid. And he, he, he was very competitive. So me and him had, had ended up doing a lot of our competitive side of things together. You know, because like with Rob Burrow and Danny Mags, when it came to the knocking crap out of each other, you had to look after him. But when you're in a little padded cell uh, where you can't use your footwork as much, it was a little bit more of the benefit to us bigger guys. But there's times where it does happen, where which you'll know something happens, uh, the testosterone starts coming, somebody might get a cut, somebody might get a you know a bit of an injury, and then all of a sudden that's it. There's been quite a few square ups. You know, but it's all in in the heat of the moment. Yeah. And as soon as you know, you, you actually start reflecting and think, "Bloody hell, I was a bit of a dickhead then." Uh, blow out of proportion, but it does happen because you've got to think we're not knocking crap out of each other. We've got that mutual respect with each other, but we're also trying to batter each other and trying to better ourselves. But we had a code of conduct. 
where you, you make sure that you look after each other as well as in certain ways. Every player will have that. Every team will have that. <laughs> you know, you've got to look after each other because you, you physically cannot go hammer and tong every day of the week, seven days a week. You know, so when it came to certain things, you, you, when we get out on the pitch, you know, you'd say to Rob, he's up with the footwork a little bit. Don't make me look stupid. <laughs> you know, in training, it's like, you can have it once, but don't do it again. Otherwise, you're going to get a clip around the ear. Look after me a little bit as well. Fair call, mate. Fair call. Keith, do you want some water or anything? Do you want a quick break? It's always good is, just is to... Not a little bit gruff, I must no, no, not at all. Because once we... I usually, half an hour, I know, especially you've been talking most of it, always give people a break just to, so they can freshen up a little bit. No, I'm all right. Good to go. All right, Keith, big moment. 1998. Challenge Cup final. Now, I did a little bit of research. Now, obviously, you guys beat Wigan 17-8. But during the season, they whacked you twice, like whacked you, like big scores. Now, you talked yeah. about your brother being in the game before Challenge Cup three years prior to this. How much of a moment in this, especially after all the trouble that you had as a, as a youth, to be at you know at the biggest stadium, one of the biggest stadiums in the world, biggest moments in rugby league history, how did it make you feel to be at this event, mate? Uh, immense and, and and the beauty of it is it was old Wembley before they refurbished it and did it up uh, 85 was when my brother so it was 13 years before uh, so you can imagine you know especially with a club like Sheffield mm. we, we were we were always a mid-table team we were never going to win Super League we always did alright and as you said Wigan pumped as many times absolutely you know some some big scores, you know, where we're talking the 30s, 40s, you know, 50s type of scores as well. And they always dominated us. To be honest, I think that's one of the only times that I beat Wigan playing for Sheffield. Is at the Challenge Cup final. Uh, odds on favourites to win. So as, as, a, as a moment for a team like Sheffield, it was such a proud moment. We, we focused on the Challenge Cup because we knew that we weren't going to win the league. Mm. You know, every team at the beginning of the year, you like to set goals, but you've got to set realistic goals. We, there's no point us saying we're going to win the championship, we're going to do this. The Challenge Cup is down to the day. And, and we've seen quite a few shocks over the years, and, and especially in the early rounds, you know, some of the big teams have, have slipped up on the day. So we, we focused... That year, John Key was the coach and, and it was all about the Challenge Cup for us. Nothing to do with the league about the Challenge Cup. Uh, and when we, one of the big moments was the quarterfinals when we played Cass. And, and you've got Cass were possibly then one of the favourites to win mm. or to get to the final because they'd knocked out Leeds, they'd knocked out Bradford who were the big guns. So they were playing Sheffield in the Challenge Cup quarterfinals. So that was a, a huge game, not only for us as a club, as as, as, a, as an organisation, but also for me personally. That's my 10 minutes of fame uh, when I punched BJ Mother, should have That's been right. sent off or should have been simbined, ended up staying on the field and went on to score two tries. Uh, you got sided. You got sided, but didn't you? Pardon? You ended up getting sided, right? Yeah, I got a four-game ban. Yeah. I got a four-game ban for that afterwards. So I missed the semi-final, which was at Headingley against Salford. Yep. So you can imagine being being a youngish kid, uh, not being able to play with part feeling and so I'd let the team down to to all of a sudden the, the boys really digging deep and, and getting that victory. Uh, and then Wembley, you know, it's the most prestigious stadium in the UK. Uh, it's what 
every professional player dreams of, you know, to get to get to Wembley mm. as as a player and, and to be able to follow in my brother's footsteps was a was a big thing as a family. Uh, but personally, absolutely amazing. We were confident, you know, we were very confident. Obviously, we're coming up against Wigan, odds on favourites to win. I think they were 15 to 1 on to win. They've yeah. never been as big odds before or after uh, for any team to win the Challenge Cup. So uh, we were quietly confident in ourselves. And John Key is a, a great motivator type of coach. Technical wise, questionable. <laughs> <laughs> Motivation. Can't fault him, you know, he's, he's, he's very, very, very good technical, you know, with the motivational side of things. But we had a team meeting the day before, the night before the yeah. final. And the emotion was just absolutely immense. You you know, when you just sat there and, and it's building that much that you can feel tears running, building up and you're trying to hold them back uh, because the belief in us was were that high that, that we we had a massive opportunity to make history and, and, and to win this game. Uh, and the best thing, walking out of the tunnel, just walking out of the tunnel and just taking in the atmosphere uh, and people playing playing the music, everybody's here inside. And it was just, it was just one of the best experiences ever just to, just to, just to feel that walking out at Wembley with a crowd cheering uh, and enjoying it. And it's always sunny. The Challenge Cup final is always yeah. sunny. So it was a beautiful day. Uh, and, what a game. What a game. Couldn't have gone any better. Absolutely. Keith, tell me about, you know, the bus trip back from Wembley to Sheffield. How many beers did you consume? What was it like, mate? Oh, it, 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 it was carnage. You stayed down the, the night after as well. Oh, did you? Okay. So, so you stayed, we stayed in the hotel at, uh, at Wembley. So, all, you know, the family and everybody gets together, you have a little bit of a social type of things. And it was the year of the full Monty. Oh, the four months he had been on, on, so that was <laughs> what made Sheffield a little bit famous as well. Yeah, yeah. So one of the stars in there wore, wore the Sheffield Eagle shirt. So as natural rugby players, once beer and alcohol was uh, consumed, we all got naked. <laughs> <laughs> so we're all on the bars, getting naked and getting stripped down, and just you know, just loving it, loving the loving the atmosphere and <laughs> loving the environment, which is like you know because. You know, a team like Sheffield, like I say, it was huge. You know, the team had only been formed in 1985, I think it was, or 1984. Mm. You know, so to get to Wembley is, is was was absolutely massive for, for the club and for everybody involved. Uh, and, and it's still down as, you know, it's still down as one of the greatest victories, I think, in, in Challenge Cup history. Yeah, totally agree. Now, mate, obviously Leeds come knocking, one of the biggest clubs in England. Going from a small club to a big club, how did it feel to make? How did it feel being wanted by one of the biggest clubs in England? Yeah, it w- I'd got to a stage in my career where Sheffield, like I said, they weren't progressing. Mm. Uh, we'd won the cup, but we didn't kick on from that. The fan base, you know, it, it's it stayed the same. Uh, you know, no big signings, nothing really sort of like, like matured. So I asked for a for a transfer yep. because like I said, it got to a stage in my career where I needed to progress. I was, I was playing international uh, for Great Britain and, and I wanted, I wanted more. I've got success, uh, you know, so on a personal point of view, I, I needed to progress my career. So I asked for a, for a transfer. Mm. I was talking with Wigan and Leeds okay. at the time. Uh, Wigan were looking favourites because they were throwing 
some some money about, but mm. then they signed somebody called Steve Renouf. Oh, that guy. <laughs> <laughs> so he, he came over. So Reeds, Reeds, then I started speaking with Gary, obviously. Uh, knew Gary from my time at, at Sheffield. Yep. And, and and it just fitted into place, but it was just such a long progression, you know, it's such a long pro- process to, to go through. I asked for a transfer at the beginning of the year, early on in the year, and I didn't actually sign for Leeds until the last game of the season on the Friday. And I played that Friday night. Did you? <laughs> so I met the deadline, signed on the Friday, met Graham Murray and, and Dean Lang and, and Gary Everington for lunch on the, on the Friday afternoon. Had lunch with them, ended up playing that, that evening, uh, made my debut for Leeds Rhinos. That's crazy. Keith, when you you know your first few weeks at Leeds, what is the major difference between a big and small club? Oh, the crowd, the fans. Uh, at Sheffield, we probably got booed in in the six seven years that I was there, maybe three times. Really? Okay. Uh, yeah, because there wasn't the pressure because we'd never won. You've got to, you know you've got to think that this is a team that's only been formed. It's it, and it's cast out of the heartlands of, of the, the typical M62 corridor. Yep. Even though Sheffield's only 30 miles away from Leeds, it's cast as it's not really in the heartlands. It's, it's really strange. It's like it's down London. Mm. Uh, you know, people see it as miles away, but it's literally only, like I say, 20, 30 miles away from Leeds. You know, so there was there were never any pressure on the players, just as long as we put the performance in and we tried as best and the, the crowd was happy. Leeds, obviously, the pressures for success were sky high. And because they'd not had the, the success that they probably warranted or the fans expected from them, the, the pressure was huge, absolutely huge. Uh, like I said, I made my debut on the Friday. There was only, and, and the week after that, we had a, we were in the playoffs. So we beat London, then we had the playoffs against St. Helens away, uh, and I were playing in the right centre. Didn't have a very good game, and then we played Cass at home, and they knocked us out of the playoffs. So that was my first taste of Leeds Rhinos. There you go. So I'd come in as a big money signing uh, to hopefully change the paths of, of the way the, the season were going. They'd won the Challenge Cup in '99, so then then I came in. They were on a bit of a decline. Graham Murray were leaving as a coach, so a new coach were coming in. So the place was a little bit, you know, downbeat. The Graham Murray were going back to Australia, and uh, and I was supposedly the big money signing. I didn't turn things around like I think everybody were expecting, mm. uh, or even performing. You got to think, I'd, like I say, I signed on the Friday and played Friday night. I didn't, you know, I knew some of the players from international, but I didn't know the, the players. players. I didn't yeah, know yeah. the team structure. Yeah. I didn't know anything about the organisation. Uh, you know, so I was frustrated into it. And I was still a young kid, I was, you know, 23 years old. Uh, and it was a massive, massive stage. Then the year after, uh, Dean Lance was was the coach. Uh, and to, to be honest, I never really fired at first. Yeah. You know, so the crowd got on my back. The pressure was ridiculous. You know, when they call the team sheet, it come to my name and I'd get booed uh, oh, no. by my own fans, <laughs> by the home fans. You know, so it was... It made, it made me a little bit thick-skinned, made me thick-skinned. Uh, you know, I appreciate the fans, they paid the money. They've got their, their right to their opinion, which everybody has, you know, some people love you, some people hate you. Uh, but I'd never had the chance to sort of like bed in, you know, so I was, and as well as I was, I was a centre, 
a centre dictate is dictated by a lot of other players. You yep. know, if your second row can't pass, if you've got an half back that never gets you the ball, if you've got an hooker that can't get you the ball, there's only so much wandering you can mm. do. So I'm determined by a lot of my players around me on, on how I play as well. Yep. On the on the quality of the ball that I get and and, and so forth. And uh, you know, it was it was ridiculous the amount of pressure and you know, it just it, it were it were, it were difficult at the time, but like I said, it makes you thick skinned. It makes you thick skinned, and, and again, it was it was a massive learning curve for me. Uh, and I, I, I changed I changed my attitude a little bit more to, towards the, the spectators of rugby league in general, and that's when I ended up being a little bit more not worrying too much about what they're saying and just basically trying to have a little bit of a crack with them. You know, if I hear something funny from the crowd, you know, because I get a lot of bold comments, <laughs> stuff like that, I'd, I'd have a crack back with them. You know, it'd be, it'd be great when I'd have somebody in the crowd who was bald himself calling me a bald, see you next Tuesday. It'd be great just to turn around and just say, what, what are you doing? You're, you're bald, why are you calling me this? You know, and I'd end up having crack with, with some of the crowd as well. Uh, you, know, that, that, you know, that was the way I why. I, I got through things. Yeah, Keith, when did the song, you know, We Love You Senior, when did that all start? Ooh. Obviously, the songs, you know, Barry Mack was one of the first ones, I think, to, to, to really get a song. Yeah. Uh, I don't know, to be honest, the year of it, but... Uh, but I t- did did no you do did you do something no good, you reckon? You, did you, was it after a few tries in a row or something, or...? The crowd changed their attitude towards me when we played against Halifax at home and I scored four tries. Okay. So we played Halifax and we scored four tries and then all of a sudden their attitude sort of like changed to me, changed towards me. But, but I was finding my feet. I was still finding my feet that season. And obviously Dean Lance had come in and changed a lot of things about the way how they were playing the game. So mm. I wasn't actually a first-choice centre because they brought over Dean Bell to yeah. play left-centre. He ended up getting in. I was on his wing to start with. Yeah. Uh, so then he got injured quite early and I, I was playing left centre. So then I started finding my feet and, and, and progressing and, and learning, understanding about, you know, Yestin Harris and, and Andy A's second rows and how to play off them. Yep. That took time. You know, Yestin Harris, absolutely superb player to have in your team because if he wants to get you that ball, no matter where he is, he will pass you that ball for 40 metre pass from anywhere. <laughs> you know, so he, it was superb having him in the team. And, and Andy A with his short passing game, it takes time to build relationships. Uh, you know, you don't you don't just build up a relationship with your, with your back rows and your halfbacks overnight. So I was I was starting to feel comfortable with them. So uh, obviously we we're playing better. We we're playing better as a unit and playing better as a team. You know, so the team were doing better. And you know, all of a sudden, like I say, one game changed their attitudes. I think towards me, but there was a lot more going on before that. It was just the case that it were four tries. Yeah. Now, Keith, you know, you talked about that pressure for the first few years that you were actually at Leeds. You know, you broke a pretty big hoodoo in 2004 to actually win the actual league title. How much pressure was it before that grand final? Uh, to be honest, because uh, it was it was new to a lot of us was the grand final. The Challenge Cup, we kept on losing. Mm. We lost in 2000, 2003, I think. You know, so we, we lost the Challenge Cup two years prior to that. The grand final was a new experience for a lot of people. And people carried on talking about the hoodoo of, you know, the you know the success that Leeds demands and the fans and, and what we should be bringing. Mm. But because it was so new to everybody, I didn't feel that there was pressure. You know, we were Tony Smith was was the coach, and 
you know, technical wise, absolutely superb coach. You know, there's a lot of people that that, that put out their play down to him. You know, it changed a lot of people's games in, you know, tenfolds. Uh, and everything was just right. You know, pressure for it is only there if you put it on yourselves. And we didn't do that. For some strange reason, we were a comfortable team and we were comfortable in everything that we were doing. And it was it was a new thing. Grand final was a new thing. It wasn't a Challenge Cup final, which we kept on losing. Yeah, This was the grand final at Old Trafford. Uh, so we didn't put ourselves under that pressure for some strange reason. Uh, like I say, you know, it was more about the occasion and, and enjoying the occasion uh, rather than putting yourselves in that in that in that type of pressure cauldron. We'd, we'd removed ourselves from that because of, you know, possibly because prior what was happening in the Challenge Cup and because maybe that might have been something that was the big hoodoo that, that people say was that was a stumbling block behind. So we didn't put ourselves in that sort of right situation. Mm. Now, Keith, you know, you achieved something amazing with Leeds, the three-peat, you know, three grand finals in a row. I wanted to get your perspective because currently in Australia, as you know, Sydney Roosters are going for a three-peat. And, you know, I just want to pick your brain a little bit. First premiership, obviously, it might be, well, you can tell me, is the first one the easiest? Is the middle one the middle? And then how the hell do you win three? Yeah, first one's definitely the easiest and everybody's trying to knock you off your off your, off your mantle. Uh, so saying that it's the easiest, it's not the easiest, it's not easy, but it is the, the easiest, easiest. <laughs> of them all. Uh, like I say, going from back to back, then there's that little bit of, Confidence, so to speak, you you know you've won it. You're expected to do it again. Mm. Uh, I think that expectation then creates more pressure because you've done it. You know, so doing the back-to-back one uh, was huge, absolutely massive. Uh, that was again, you know, Brian McLennan coming in for that. Technical-wise, we were great. We'd had Tony Smith for a, for a number of years, so technical-wise, we knew each other like clockwork. You know, we knew everybody's uh, strengths, weaknesses, how people played, everything about each other. Uh, we were a very close knit team. Mm. So coming onto the pitch, we didn't we didn't need a coach to coach us for the technical side of things because we, we were very well drilled. And like I say, we understood everything what we needed to do and how we needed to do it. And we're very fortunate in having a generation of Kevin Sinfield, Rob Burrow, Danny Maguire, all growing up together and playing massive, pivotal roles in a team, which to get that again in a, in a team is, you, you, you know, your Billy Slater-type uh, thing at, at, at Melbourne. It doesn't happen very often mm. to have three pivotal players grow up together and understand each other so, and to stay for so long to be you know for Danny and Rob to, uh, Danny and uh, Kev to be one club teams so we had the nucleus of, of everything around us and we knew, we knew each other to a T so yeah. we needed psychologically training and that's where well, we came in again wow opened up a lot of people's eyes to the psychological side of things in a way and it's, it's yeah. motivational type of things uh, you know, some of it was simple, but we probably had a little bit of a fixed mindset on that. You know, so when he came in and, and brought all these these new things, which he'd used for the Kiwis for a number of years, uh, but to us it were new. It were all new, you know, like watching a, a video on geese on how they work together. You know, everybody would have seen it. It's an old video, you know, but for us seeing it for the first time, it was lighthearted, but it, it puts across a message 
uh, and, and we'd opened up our minds to, to the psychological side of things. And, and we had a few players, so to speak, like, like myself, which we needed we needed confirmation on that. Like there were me and Matt Diskin, and I remember after after we'd we'd done this, and Brian McLennan brought in his 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 talk for the year, which was the the way the season was going to go and what we were gonna we were gonna live by, so to speak. It was keywords in it, and he brought in a, a pendant which had a, a three pointed triangle, which made a nine pointed star. Every triangle had a meaning. Every point had a meaning. Yeah, and we were skeptical, me and Disco. Uh, you just remember think, sitting in this meeting thinking, wow, this is, this is deep, but it's, 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 it's way over the top. But he kept on working on us uh, and he changed our perception on everything. Uh, and we all wore the pendant for that year, for that three-page year. Every player wore that pendant. Uh, strength rising unity was engraved on the back because that's what it was all about. It was all about the, the team as a unit. Uh, and to say it pulled us through is probably, you know, a massive statement, but it did. You know, like I said, we all, whenever we were feeling a little bit as though things were getting down on us, we had this pendant and everybody wore it. We wore mm. it through the full season. Uh, we've all still got it. And uh, it, it was huge. It was massive. Uh, and, and that was a psychological barrier, which, you know, was was huge for us. And it, and it brought in some some great things. Uh, which I still use now in coaching, you know, with a Kaizen, which again, it's been going around for millions and millions of years. But when you've got people that are hammering you with it and just, you know, just the little things, it's it's massive. Keith, you've, you've mentioned a few amazing coaches throughout your career. You know, obviously you do it now. Who do you feel that has had that biggest influence in terms of the style that you present to your players now? Uh The old cliche, you take tips from everybody, don't you? Yeah. Uh, I think the game's evolved a little bit now. The way with all the mental health and, and the way our, our players are, it's, it's getting to a stage where the technical side of things are probably 20% of the game. Yeah, more man management. Yeah. A lot of it is going down to the man management side of things. Mm. Every team's got the same players. Always, you know, the execution, the core basics are all there. The better players do it. You know, you, you've got to keep coaching the core basics. Uh, the game's getting that fast now that it's getting so off the cuff that set players are, are getting, you know, are, they're going to be disbanded at the way the game's going because everything's so much off the cuff that you've got to understand everybody's strengths and weaknesses. But you've also got to make sure that the, the players are happy. Uh, you know, the man management side of things is, is probably the hardest thing to achieve because you've got, 30 different personalities. Mm. Some of them, you've got to understand how they learn, how to coach them. Some of them, you've got to understand all the personal lives, issues, how they deal with things. Yeah. You know, so you've got to become more of a, a psychologist than a coach <laughs> nowadays. Yeah. Uh, Absolutely. You know, like, it's, it's a minefield and, and, and that's something that I've, I've probably worked a lot on is, is the psychological, psychological side of things. So like yeah. I say, it's, the technical side of things are easy. You know, we, we, we've got the core basics, you know, the, the passing, the catching and, and the tackling. That's that's never going to change. You know, the better that you can do that, the better you're going to be. Yep. Uh, but you've also got to have that connection as, as a team, uh, as a unit and as an organisation. And you've all got to be singing off the same same song sheet, you know, so, and you've got to find ways that 
to make everybody interact into that. And I suppose that's the hardest thing to do is to make sure that everybody, because if you've got one person that's not quite bought in, yeah. it's actually a massive thorn in that side. You know, so finding a way to make sure that everybody's bought into this into this culture that you, you, you're trying to create is, is huge. Yeah. Was there a moment through your career that you knew that you wanted to be a coach? Probably not. No. Uh, I liked the youth development side of things a little bit more than the first team coach. I always said that I never wanted to be a first team coach. Uh, it's ruthless. It's a ruthless industry. It's, you know, it, it can be a little bit of a thankless task. Yeah. Uh, one year you can be the greatest, the next year you can you can well, be, be the worst. Yeah. It's as simple as that, and you could never work. You know, I've seen many coaches that have never worked in the game again. Uh, from from. You know, very, very good coaches as well. So I'd always said that I never wanted to be a first team. I wanted to work more with the youth, mm. youth development side of things because they're like sponges. You know, they're easier. They're easier to deal with because they've got that dream where sometimes you get these professional players that, that can be hard, it can be difficult. And sometimes, yes, they still do know it all. You know, as many times when you feel like sometimes they're not really listening because they think that they know everything. Uh, but with the kids' side of things, the sponges uh, and you can grow and you can develop. So I always wanted to go into the, into the, the development side of things. But then when I, I ended up retiring, I've never officially retired, uh, announced my retirement. Oh, he's making a I, comeback. Hold on. He's making a comeback. He's just announced it. <laughs> nine years on now. It's been nine years since I, I finished playing the last game. Uh, I sort of like, I was in a, a massive crossroads Mm. I, I struggled massively, massively when I finished rugby yep. uh, because it, it wasn't on my terms. I wasn't prepared and I, and I was very bitter with it. I basically got an injury. I did my ACL. Yep. Uh, I ruptured my anterior cruciate ligament, but then I got MRSA in hospital. So I had 12 operations in 10 months. And after the last operation, the surgeon basically just said, I can't repair you, knee. There's nothing I can do for you. Mm. I was 35 years old. Uh, Hindsight's a wonderful thing, and I kept on putting off what I was going to do after rugby. And I suppose there's a little bit of naivety in the fact that I thought I'd get looked after, yeah. you know, because I'd had this successful career that I thought, you know what, I'll be able to get a job. I'll be, if I want a coaching job, I should be able to get a job. Yeah. I'm an international player. I've got 43 caps for my country. Uh, I've played 560 career games. I've, you know, I've got a lot of experience. I'm very naive. Uh, and I thought that I'd just walk into a job, but I didn't. Mm. And I couldn't find anything. I couldn't do anything. So I spent a long time out of work, uh, like I said, with no education. So I went through I went through some really deep, troubling times. Yeah. There was no player welfare like there is now in the UK. Uh, so the, it was just a case of thank you for your services. Enjoy the rest of your life. And that's how it was. And that's how it was. Uh, and when you think nowadays, people leave school and they, they go straight into rugby. So they don't have a career path. So they finish rugby and they've not qualified in anything apart from rugby. You know, you've got a load of transferable skills, but you, you've not got any life experience of an yeah. actual trade. You know, so the, the player welfare side of things has, has jumped tenfolds in, in that respect because everybody's careers are taking off at 30, 35 years old, where all of a sudden I've gone from six figures to nothing. Nothing, yeah. And that was it. Financially, I was I was comfortable. I was secure financially. That wasn't the issue. But yeah. I'd lost everything about me. I'd lost my career. 
I'd have lost what my purpose was. That identity. Yeah. I knew what I was about. Uh, Keith Senior, post rugby, still finding my feet. You know, I'm dipping into all sorts of, you know, with the coaching. I've been doing coaching at Sheffield for, for, for about six years now. And there's times where you think, this isn't for me. But then there's times where, you, again, it's like, wow, this is awesome. <laughs> you know, you have the good days and the bad days. But, you know, I went through a real tough period when I finished because I was, I was quite angry because I felt it wasn't my time. I still had too much to give the game. I still had too much to offer. I was still playing well. Yeah. I was still playing very, very well, even at a 35-year-old. Uh, you know, so once that was taken away from me and, and everything that was my coping mechanism was rugby. A little bit selfish in the fact, you know, if I had issues at home, it didn't matter because I could go into training the next day. Within five minutes, somebody would take the piss out of me. I'd, I'd be smiling, I'd be happy. That's forgotten about. You know, the problems are still there, but my mindset's changed. When rugby was taken away and I didn't have that, I didn't have the coping mechanisms and I didn't know how to deal with it. So emotionally, I was I was weak as piss. Yeah. I was really, really weak emotionally uh, being able to cope with any type of outside pressures. That that moment for yourself, those deep, you know, those deep down moments, was that the catalyst? What you do now with mental health, obviously you're a big advocate and you're doing something huge now with with World Cup coming up next year. Was that the catalyst for starting and following that passion? I think so, yeah. So I, I started working part-time at Rugby League Cares, just doing presentations around all the Super League clubs, just basically it's the player welfare system. I think that started 20, it might start at 2011, 2012, yeah. a little bit after Terry Newton. Uh, you know, so the player welfare system was was brand new and it wasn't about when I was there. So, and like I said, everybody's left school and gone straight into rugby. Mm. Nobody's picked up a trade where it used to, back in, since 96, it was part-time. So everybody had a trade and everybody had rugby. Rugby was a little bit of extra money on top of the wage. You know, it wasn't the be-all and end-all. If you finish rugby, you still had your job. Yep. You still had something to keep focusing on. Uh, whereas you finish rugby now, you've not got anything unless you've prepared yourself and trained. So getting that point across, getting that out there, you know, and making sure that, so like I say, you bec- even though we do earn very, very good salaries as professional rugby players, you become accustomed to the lifestyle that you're living. So instead of spending a thousand pound on a holiday, you spend 5,000 pound on a holiday because you've earned it, you've deserved it, you know, so you do spend a little bit more yeah. on the, on the nicer things. You know, so you, you do become a little bit more accustomed to the lifestyle that you're living in. And then, like I said, all of a sudden that goes, think, that goes. Yeah. If you're 35 years old and you're getting a, a new career path and you're earning 20,000 to 30,000 pound a year, you've done very, very well. You know, so we could have some people, like I said, on six figures to, to possibly, tw- my first job back at the Reeds Rhinos Foundation, I was earning 14,000 pound a year. There you go. But I had to do it yep. because I needed to get out of my bubble. I needed to to push myself in a way, you know, so that, that pushed on the charity side of things, again, working with the Regionals Foundation, you know, working with underprivileged children, uh, working with the disabled and, mm. and putting something back and, and doing some good things. I've always done a lot of charity events. I've got a lot more into the charity events because again, I'm patron, 
to the Laura Crane Youth Cancer Trust, which is a youth cancer charity. I do a lot for, for Rugby for Heroes, which is actually a rugby union charity, but works with servicemen. Yep. I've done a lot of events for Walking with the Wounded, which is servicemen and, and, and charity, the Jane Tomlinson Foundation. I've done a lot for charity, but on a selfish point of view, like I say, it gives me that purpose, you know, so it gives me that focus. That's my Challenge Cup final. Doing an event, running the London Marathon, bloody horrible. Absolutely horrible. Hate running, absolutely <laughs> despise running, but I've done the London Marathon for the last six years. Uh, I, I keep on doing it, absolutely hate it. But that's my that's my Challenge Cup final. That's my grand final. Uh, that's my high. So for the selfish point of view, it was great for me, but it raises so much awareness for the, for the charities uh, and raises so much money as well because I did the walking with the wounded uh, I did the marathon disabled were walking with the wounded. So I did it with some ex-veterans. There were two ex-veterans that were there. Yep. Literally they'd been, they'd been blown up by IED bombs out in, in service. So one of them uh, was an American and it literally his right side had been blown off. Most of his quad was missing. So you could basically look to all the muscle had been ripped apart. Most of his hand is it were blind in one eye and all, half of his face had been ripped apart as well. So I'm doing the marathon disciples and I'm really, really struggling with blisters. <laughs> really, really bad. <laughs> Tough I, enough, I'm trying to for the full week. <laughs> awful. Really, really bad. Yeah. But then I look at this guy, you know, he's prodding on, he's getting through it. He's he's been blown up. What right have I got to be whinging about blisters? Yeah. Puts it in perspective, and, mate. Massively, massively. Yeah. Uh, you know, and seeing things like that, it, it, it helps, you know, when I, I still struggle massively a lot. I still, you know, my mental health is, it's a roller coaster. Mm. It's, it's always a work in progress, but, but doing stuff like that as well, it just helps me give myself a little bit of a slap in the face and say, what, what is up with me? Why, why, why am I whinging about this? Why am I mourning about this? You know, my life, I've had one of the greatest careers, Yeah. you know, you know I've had a, what a lot of kids strive to have. When I finished, I felt that I wasted my life because I didn't see a future. <laughs> That's how stupid the mind is. Yeah. You know, people say it is just change your mindset when you're that, in that it's mindset. It's not that simple. Not as no. as that. Yeah. It, it's not that easy to just say, oh, I'll just think about something else. You know, you've got to work on it. You've got to program it. You've got to, you've got to train it to be able to, you know, resilience is a massive word now that a lot of people talk about uh, but you've got to program your mind to be able to deal with shit mm. on a training field and, and on a rugby pitch you, you're training you, you can train for that physical side of things you can train for for that side of thing the mental side of it who wants to put themselves in shit situations no. you don't want to actively put yourself in a shit situation to see if you're resilient yeah it's true <laughs> you, know, you try and avoid that uh, you know, so the mental side of it is, is huge, and the project that we've got coming up for the World Cup with November Rugby League Cares is 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 massive. Yeah, it's, it's an Australian huge. product, yeah. which oh, Australians they get everywhere. Watch out, everyone! <laughs> Keithy's going to be going and mowing November. Watch out, big Hulk Hogan one. Yeah, yeah. So the project that we're running with Rugby League Cares in, in November, it's called Ahead of the Game. Yeah. Uh, and it, it's, it's been it's been run a little bit in in Australia at the moment, and it's it's had the top psychologists, psychiatrists, everybody look at look at what how to how to present it, all the right techniques, everything that we need to do. So we have got to deliver 
uh, a mental health project seminar to, to 8,000 kids between 12 and 18 years of age. Wow. All the parents, all the coaches, every team in the World Cup that comes over, every coach, every player, every, every staff member, uh, and every volunteer. So we're trying to hit hopefully around 20,000 people. That's amazing, uh, mate. Because in Australia, it is huge. Like every November, the actual positive messages and the great spread of just positive vibes through the community spread through just Movember, mate, it's going to blow you away when you see it for the first time, but it is amazing. And, and that's it, you know, until you actually walk into something, and that's that's how, how, my, how my mind has actually, you know, I, I love to educate myself. I wish I, I wish I were like this 35 years years ago, you know, and, and learning and understanding things. And that Movember, you didn't, I didn't realise it was actually an Australian organization two guys just in a room just decided to do it yeah and how it's progressed into the, into the movement what it is you know is is, is absolutely huge and i would say mental health awareness it's, it's at the forefront of, of everybody's uh talking at the moment uh it's huge and, and there's people coming out you know like greg english you know we're fortunate that we've yeah. got him in super league next year hopefully that comes after come out and and talk about the stigma behind mental health because it's such a macho industry Greg Inglis, six foot three, hundred and five kilograms. You know, he's a mammoth of the man. He's proved that everybody has weaknesses. Everybody Absolutely. has these moments where you find it tough, you find it hard, and, and they're the stigmas that we, we, by people like that speaking out, it it it, it helps kids. It helps kids realise, and, and and the research is that a lot of mental health actually starts uh, in adolescence. So if we can get them learning to cut with all the coping mechanisms, give them, give them that awareness and give them that understanding. Then when issues do come around and they do arise, they've got them coping mechanisms where they can deal with it and they can build up the resilience, you know, so the awareness is huge. And anybody that can come out of it, like I say, with Greg English coming out, it's, it's difficult to, yeah, to do. Totally it's, very, it's, it's like a sign of weakness. And like he says, he's a, he's a mammoth of a man and everybody's looked up, looked up to him for, for years you know, and, and to realise that somebody of that stature can struggle with mental health uh, and can struggle with something that can not mean much to anybody else uh, it can be such a massive thing to that individual. And, and it's how you perceive that. And the amount of awareness that we can get out there is can only be f- for the better. Yeah, totally agree. Now, I've got two questions to wrap things up. All right, the first one. Obviously, I knew you were a good player. So NRL scouts must have known you are a good player. Did the NRL ever come calling? I had a few opportunities. I think back in, when was it? They had the World Nines at Townsville. I think it was 90, what was it? Early 2000s or something like that. And I ended up, I was joint top try scorer. Okay. So I had I had a few inquiries uh, from the NRL, but Gary Edrington was always a, a very shrewd businessman. And I had a <laughs> transfer fees. I had a, a <laughs> long-term contract uh, at the Rhinos. So... It always involved a transfer fee, so it, you know it never it never really materialised that much. Uh, so there was there was the odd you know uh, approach, but like I say, it was something that was was out of my hands, and and, and I probably weren't worth the, the transfer fee that Gary was putting on top of my head. <laughs> now, mate, you played over five hundred first grade games for a guy that played the way that you did. And obviously you had that ACL injury at the end, but to go that length of time 
did you have a secret sort of kind of recovery method? Like, how'd you make it? Was longevity about, mate? If I knew that, I would make millions. That's all I know, <laughs> mate. You've got to go back to the. How did you do it? You look back at my career and you think I didn't have many operations, but to be fair, I played through them. You know, like the so shoulder, me and Barry Mark yeah. beat up quite a fair bit, and, and he's had a new shoulder. He can, he's had a new shoulder. I've got to a stage where my shoulder's just absolutely messed up, and the next stage is a new shoulder. Uh, you know, so we talk about that, and you think I just carried on playing through these. Uh, you know, with the injuries and, and that type of thing, and I think that's just the. It's just the attitude that I had uh, because I, loved, I hated training. Don't get me wrong, I hated training. <laughs> and my genetics and my physi- physiological side of things, I shouldn't be a professional player. I've got the shortest hamstrings ever. I'm as flexible as a piece of wood. So I don't know. I honestly do not know what the longevity is, but I was just stubborn as hell. Uh, you know, and, and even if I had an injury, it wasn't, I'd, I'd try and push through it. If not, I'd get it injected, which I don't condone. Uh, but it was just a case of just trying to push through things. Okay. Uh, because I, I loved it. I hated training. Mm. I play, you know, we talk about Easter, where we have to play two games and, and it's it's been canned at the moment. I remember all the Australians coming over. Yeah. Oh, you can't play two games in, in four days. You know, <laughs> play Friday, sometimes you play Monday. And the Australian, you know, they'd be uproar. But I'd rather do that than train. You know, I'd rather play two games in four days than, than train. Uh, you know, that was my answer. I just love the games that much. I just love getting out on that field uh, and performing. You're still you know, looking... Was it, was, it, was, it was just such a, a privileged position for me. And that's, you know... Looking back on it, you don't appreciate it as a player as much as what you do when you finish. Yeah. Uh, and the history and the heritage of, of organisations and the game, you know, it's something that I've I've looked into a, a lot more than when I played because it, it wasn't that important. Yeah. But then, you know, like I said, just opening up your mind up and just because I'm part of it, you know, because I'm part a huge part of the the history and the heritage of Leeds Rhinos and, and and Sheffield Eagles. It's it's important, you know. It's it's great to to look back and you know go to go to Headingley and, and seeing the pictures on the wall and seeing your face, and, yeah. and that's something that's never going to go. That's always going to be there, you know. It's 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 awesome to be a part of that. All right, three rapid fire ones to finish. The first one. Now, back in your career, if you could have played someone that you played against but you never got to play with, was there any special players like that? Oh. Uh, Darren Lockyer. Okay. Playing against him, yeah. Test matches, Australian, superb. Who do you reckon? Who was the hardest to mark in terms of an Aussie opposition centre? Who was? Who gave you the most grief? Do you know what? Uh, I was quite fortunate when it came to playing against the Australians because when it came to the the big guns, uh, they either got injured. So Greg Inglis, I remember when he, he played back in 2006, but he was on the wing. He started on the wing, uh, you know, and they the, the put makeshift centres, the, like they put like a hooker into the centre because... The, oh, like Craig the, Wing, yeah, yeah. They'd always, they'd always put, uh, yeah, they'd always put somebody else there. So I'd never had that yeah. coming up against, you they're know, prob- the, like I said, hey, the They're probably running scared, mate. Let's say they're running scared. 
Yeah, Mark Gasnier was, I think Mark Gasnier was the centre, but he got injured early on in that game and went off. Yeah. You know what I mean? So it's like, and I played on the right-hand side and, and I think I was against him, but he ended up getting injured quite early in that game. You know, so I've never actually come up a, a Malmeninger, uh, you know, that, that was always classed as a, the top end of the, the Australia. Yeah, yeah. I, I was fortunate against, you know, Jamie Lyon when he came to St. Helens, mm. you know, to play against him. We could play. And yeah. local challenges when they were at Manly. But uh, no, dis- I don't want to disrespect, uh, you know, the players, but they weren't centres. The best of the best. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know you're saying. They were yep. There weren't people that have been put there, you know, like the Kiwis. I always, you always used to come up against Nigel Vagana in the early days, Ruben Wickey. When, it, when, when he was, when a, he was a winger than a centre. <laughs> and then thankfully they got rid of him and, and put him into the prop. Uh, you know, against the Kiwis, I had, I had quite a few opposition. You know, with Shantae and Happy, like I say, Nigel Vagana. But against the Australians, it always used to be a case of it would be a makeshift player that, that would be put there. Okay. Well, mate, turning to today's game, either the Super League or NRL or both, is there a player of today's league that stands out of someone that you would have liked to have played with back in the day? Uh, Tedesco is, is, is on fire yeah. at the moment and he's a fullback. Uh, obviously, I was very fortunate to play with a ball playing fullback as in Brent Webb. Yep. Brent Webb, revo- I think he revolutionised the fullback position in a way to make it more of a ball player. And as well with Darren Lockie, obviously, going from halfback and, and fullback, they've sort of like revo- revolutionised the, the fullback position as another halfback in a way. So I love seeing, seeing players that, that, that are ball playing. Fullbacks in a way, and Tedesco at the moment is is absolutely killing it. Absolutely, you know, it's it's a pleasure to to watch him play. Definitely, uh, you know. So it's who's who's the big guy at at Brisbane? Oh, Payne Haas. Oh, oh he's he can play eighty minutes a, if he wants to, mate. Yeah. Uh, people talk about the way the game's going faster, than, but players adapt. You know, he's he's an eighty minute player all day long, but he's He's, he's got the he's got every attribute going. He's he's, he's got the ball skills of an Ari Rawatiti. Yeah. He's got the power of a Petra Sevenasima. <laughs> you know, he's he's, he's the all round player. Uh, and he'd, be, he'd be great to play with as yeah, well. Yeah, hundred percent. All right, final question, Keith. Dinner party question. You got five invites to a private dinner party. Now, only rules: no family or friends, but you can invite anyone, dead or alive. Who would you like to have to dinner? Yeah, questions like this. I wouldn't invite my family anyway. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Muhammad Ali. Yeah. Uh, Bruce Lee. Yep. Are you big into your fighting in that? Or, I mean, like watching yeah. the boxing and you have seen that? She's just graded. She's just done a black belt for kickboxing at the weekend. Oh, really? Second time that she's done it. So, and then, well, she's just done a junior black, so she's going on to do a black belt. How did she uh, go? Time, so, I used to do Thai boxing, so... I think that was a little bit of gave me the respect side of things, yep. uh, you know, from not really getting it from my parents, that the martial arts side of things helped me mm. uh, gain my sort of like respect for, for, for other people. Yep. Uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger. There you go. Yep. Sky Stallone. He's at mine too, mate. He's my hero, that bloke. I went to see him last, a couple of years ago. Went did, to a dinner with Sly Stallone. Did you? Amazing. Yeah, absolutely what? outstanding. Wow. Uh, captivating. You, you know, his life story in itself is is brilliant. Hey, Keith, uh, he's only small, eh? 
He's not big, yeah. Yeah, yeah small in height. He's still, he's still he's quite big. full, yeah, so yeah, to yeah. speak. Not quite muscular, but yeah, yeah height-wise, he's, he's not the biggest. Yeah. But he's, he's just got that respect. He just holds a room. Yeah. He's, he's, you know, the attention that he gets, is, you know, when he tells his stories. Is, and, and, and again, it just shows you for the upbringing that he's... He can't speak very well, <laughs> but he's one of the biggest actors in Hollywood. Mate, no one knows. <laughs> no one knows this, but the day I do a podcast with Sylvester Stallone, I'm retiring. Like that's oh, going to be my very last one. Yeah, yeah I, I, I went to Arnold Schwarzenegger as well. Okay. He did he, the same year. Yeah, there was an organisation that brought them that brought them over. So it was it was great to to sit down with. With two heroes, I'm going to do six. Now I'm going to do one more. That's Hulk Hogan, yeah. who was my childhood hero uh, as a wrestler. I used to love the wrestler. Did you? Inside, so to meet him was great. I once met him at. Body Did you Power. meet him? Yeah, I met, which I was pissed off about because I met him with my missus. With me, it was a case of they shook me hand, said nice to meet you. When the missus has spent a bloody good 10 minutes talking to her, it was like, what's going on here? You're trying to crack on with your bird. That's what was happening. <laughs> but, mate, I used to like the wrestling too. I met Sean Michaels. Do you remember him? Yes. Yeah. He came out oh, to the oh, shops one yeah. day. Ultimate warrior. You yep. know, the British Bulldog, all them type. I grew up with that type. You know, they were they were sort of like what me and my dad used to watch TV together when we used to spend a little bit of weekend time together. He's underrated. The macho man. He was kind of the guy that <laughs> I, I, I liked him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah they're, they're not as good now, are they? Nah. Uh, last one, Pamela Anderson. Oh, mate, she's already coming to mine. She can't come to yours. <laughs> no, mate, to be honest, that was my, that was my crush growing up, bud. Well, it was Baywatch, wasn't it? How old are you? I'm 37. Right, so I'm 44, so... Yes, bear watch back in there. Then. Oh, unbelievable. It's near TV, wasn't it? That other one as well, the the brunette, what was her name? Yasmin? Yasmin oh, Bleeth. Yasmin Bleeth. You can have her, mate. I'm having Pam. <laughs> you don't get a choice if you can have her. <laughs> <laughs> well, Keith, really appreciate you joining me on the podcast. Before I let you leave, everyone get following Keith. Find him at Twitter, Keith Senior 4 Instagram, Keith. That's K-double-E-F number four. But, mate, it's been an absolute pleasure to catch up, mate, and... Oh, yeah. Hopefully you come to Australia sometime for the World Cup soon and, you know, one day hopefully catch up, have a beer, mate. Yeah, definitely. Fingers crossed. It's only been four years for for you to get me on since I've retired. Sorry, mate. You know what? Barry Mack said I wasn't allowed to have you on. Yeah, I can imagine that. She knows that I'm a better interviewer than him. Mate, 100%. I'm going to tell him that right now. (laughs) Well, mate, all the best. Uh, I'll let you know when the, the podcast comes out in the next few weeks or so. But, mate, if you need any hands with, like, promoting anything, like everything coming up with Movember, just let yeah. me know what you want me to put on. Happy to run it on the podcast, whatever, man. So whatever I can do to help, just sing out. Excellent. Cheers. Thank you. All right, mate. Catch up soon. See you, brother. See you, Keithy. Care.